What's up guys, welcome back for another episode of Creator Economics and today's guest you might already know because he is at the top of the technology space. He's been a YouTube creator for I believe 12 years and still going and he is the biggest he's ever been currently. Marquez Brownlee, if you haven't checked out his channel, MKBHD, you should. He reports on everything, Apple, Samsung, Tesla. And so we wanted to have him on, wanted to talk a little bit about how he thinks about this space and what he thinks the future of each of these product categories looks like. Enjoy. Everyone kind of knows, you know, probably your channel. They've seen it before. I, I really, where I wanted to start was I kind of just wanted to back up a little bit and let you kind of give your abbreviated story uh, for those people that may have not seen your channel or have seen your channel but haven't gone on that deep with you as a creator yet. Right, yeah, the the intro story is I was in high school, I've always been into tech, I've always been kind of a nerd, was buying a laptop with my allowance money. Big choice when you're in high school, you don't have much to spend on, so this was a, a big deal. So I was doing a lot of research about like what the best laptops were, what the most expensive, what the cheapest ones were, how, how I was gonna make this, this purchase decision. It was a big deal to me. And I finally picked one, and when I got that laptop, I realized that there were a couple things that I didn't see in the other videos about it. And you know, I'd watched a bunch of stuff, but I didn't see everything. And so since I had just finished watching all these videos, I figured the smart thing to do would be to make a video about the thing that I'd found that I didn't see in those videos. So my first videos were just about that laptop that I got, turned the camera on myself, showed the media center remote that I didn't know came in the PCI slot, and that was the first video. Um, and it's sort of just been a slow snowball from there of like just making videos about tech products that I own, that I like, helping people to make purchase decisions and uh, helping people buy things more smartly. For, for context, how old were you when you did that first video? I think 14 or 15, something like that. So like 12, 13 years ago or something like that at this point? Yeah, about a dozen, so I was a child. Yeah. Who was yeah. who was making tech videos back then? Like who who did you actually go to? Was there any creator out there that was specializing in that vertical? Honestly, back then there were almost none. I want to say it was mostly just like the the ones that were working for the CNETs and and online publications of the world that wanted to make tech videos to embed on their site but didn't have their own player. They'd upload it to YouTube and embed that YouTube video on their site. That was kind of the tech YouTube world at that time. Uh, so the, the creator, the individual tech creator world was kind of born uh, shortly after I started. Do you, do you remember like how you even first discovered YouTube? Because it's funny, when you go back to like your first video, it's when you're doing your golf you know, analysis video, but like yeah. what, I guess, how do you even, do you remember uh, when you discovered YouTube and like what prompted you to even post that in those golf videos? I just know it's always been, it's just sort of kind of fascinating to me that you can post something and then anyone on the internet, anywhere in the world can give you feedback on it. It's like this free tool of like research and, and all this stuff. So I, when I was, you know, a competitive junior golfer in high school, I didn't have a coach. I, I was, I literally started the, the team at my school with a fellow classmate. So we didn't have any sort of formal instruction. Uh, so we went to YouTube for a lot of stuff about learning to play and about, know golf swing analysis we saw other people were posting their swings for analysis and literally the internet would descend upon their golf swing and tell them you need your elbow in closer to your hip on the downswing like that's the type of stuff you don't get for free but on the internet it is free so it, yeah it's just kind of always been a, a cool phenomenon that all of this inter information was always at our fingertips so that was uh 
that was the the true first video <laughs> is the is the <laughs> golf swing analysis for sure do you did you ever have like a moment where a, like a light bulb went off in your head of like wow this is actually a business or i could see myself doing this for the next 10 years of my life do you, do you remember that moment of when it clicked yeah it was i don't know if there was a moment but there it was sometime in college because I, I went to an engineering school where it was it was very common to get a an internship at the place you intend at working, the, the place you intend at working for when you graduate, things like that. And I got to that sophomore year step and I didn't want to work for anything. <laughs> I wanted to keep making videos. And it actually made financial sense to, to do that. So it was sometime in college, um, you know, that the second half of college was kind of like professors turning the spotlight back on me, like, well, wait a second, I'm teaching social media, but why don't you help me? Like, you're in the world already. Even though we try to do real world stuff, we'll just have you talk to the class. So it was somewhere in the middle of college, I'd probably say. And then what's the, like, what's the current team look like right now? Current team would be uh, still single digits, but so there's me and Andrew. So I'd, I'm, I'm me, Andrew's sort of the production manager, uh, we have Vin and Brandon, cinematographers, specialists behind the camera, but they also do set designs. So when the videos look really great, it's mostly because they're really great. Um, then I have, let's see, Adam, who edits the podcast and produces what we're about to turn into a video podcast. Uh, David's a recent add to the team, who is a writer, researcher, script supervisor type. And Michael, who is the motion graphics specialist. So any of the fancy intros or motion graphics or things like that. That is the current team as exists today. When did you make that first hire? Like at what point did you decide like, oh my gosh, I need to actually bring on someone? I remember pretty vividly that one actually. So that was, um, it was CES about four, five years ago. It was basically, it was, an, it was yet another event where I needed someone to hold the camera and didn't have anyone to hold the camera. And a lot of times you can get away with that because you can have it on a tripod a couple feet away and focus and, and shoot your video. Even if it's a busy scene, you can kind of get away with that. But CES was so crowded and just so much happening. And I wanted to cover it in so much more of a, of a better way than I was able to by myself. And I, I literally texted my friend Andrew and I was like, hey, this, I was just thinking like, if you were with me just to hold the camera, this would have been way easier. And uh, that was sort of the beginning of our conversations about working together. So that was definitely a, I consider that a light bulb moment. When, yeah. when you first started making videos, like how did the tech industry actually like see, like how did they view you as a creator? Did they view you as like a tech crunch as like a publication or were they kind of shied off about like the content you were making that you were potentially like taking eyeballs away from those those publications like do you, do you remember like what it was like early on because i think now it's like it's it's a, it's adapted like people are used to it people see you as like the main place to go for tech news but like early on was there any negativity towards what you were doing i wouldn't call it negativity but it's it was definitely perceived differently in different places which is really interesting mm -hmm. to watch happen. But, you know, I think the community on YouTube has always been very open, and I guess that would be expected if, you know, tech YouTubers come along, then other YouTubers understand. Um, then there would be the, the world of media and tech companies where they are very used to working a certain way with tech publications, with the CNETs, like I said, the Wall Street Journals, even the new ones, The Verge, those companies 
the way journalists work with tech companies is very traditional and like lockstep. So everyone understands that world. And so when an independent YouTuber comes along who has the same audience or maybe a newer, younger version of the same audience and you want to reach them too, it was like this new thing for companies to try to figure out, well, do we just treat the YouTuber like another piece of press or do we do something new and different for them? That was an interesting question and it's definitely evolved over time uh, for the better, which has been good to watch. I could, I could talk about that for a long time. Um, and then the other half is like, what if you are one of these journalists or one of these uh, tech publication writers? A lot of them really like the idea of being an independent reviewer and then having their own opinion amplified by itself instead of being a part of insert company here. And so that was always uh, the subject of a lot of interesting conversations. But I think generally now in 2021, um, it's just another puzzle piece. It's definitely very commonly accepted and, and pretty well understood by all the pieces. Yeah, it's, it's been interesting from like my perspective watching some of the tech companies. I think OnePlus is a good example of like a comp like a company leaning into the YouTube community and the creator yeah. ecosystem. And like I'm sure they seed you with products and they they probably talk to you about everything coming out. I know they just came out with a new phone. I'm guessing it wasn't like that early on. Like I'm guessing Apple and Samsung probably were not sending you product, right? They probably kept you at an arm's length. How, how has that dynamic changed with some of those bigger tech companies? Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if I would, I don't know how to describe the early relationship. I guess keeping it at an arm's length is probably how they would describe it. Um, but no, it was, there was always the like outside looking in thing with YouTubers and tech events. And then slowly companies became more and more receptive to video and not just receptive but actually accommodating like they would actually set up areas for people to shoot videos understanding that this is a thing that's going to happen um probably the last one was apple apple's just this mega conglomerate gigantic corporation they've they've done it the way they want to pretty much every year and i was the first youtuber ever to be invited to an apple event to an iphone event and you know i get there and i look around there's nobody else holding cameras you know, all the embargoes and everything I signed was all in the form of when you write this thing, here's how to write it and publish it. Like nothing really fit for what I was doing there. Um, fast forward maybe two, three years later, there's a handful of us YouTubers. Then the next year there's nine or 10 of us. And today there's probably more people holding cameras than just writing. So uh, yeah, it's gone, it's kind of flipped in the, in the perspective of at least people who have probably been at Apple for all those years. And, and, and I guess maybe just taking a step back and going to just how you have evolved over that time as well, because obviously your team has grown and you made a couple hires. Are, are you still editing your own videos today or what does that look like on just the editing side? I am still editing everything. Um, it's like there's a, there's a bunch of, obviously the hires all help make videos. And there's a, I sort of divided in my head between creative, and non-creative like roles and all of the best you know easiest most productive hires to make were all in non-creative roles and that's i don't even know if that's a fair word to use because even set design and cinematography is creative but there were things that i felt like weren't core to my creative vision i could describe the thing to someone hand them the task they could do it better than me and the last thing that's the hardest for me to do is the creative stuff like writing that's been one of the latest hires and like editing, which has not been a hire yet. 
Um, so yeah, when, when everything gets shot, I shoot a lot myself. When, you know, Vin and Brandon shoot, they'll just drop off an SSD on my desk. I import everything. I take it from soup to nuts. So it is, uh, it is still very much in my hands. Have you tried hiring an editor? Is there, is there a reason that you continue to do it? I mean, Vin and Brandon can edit. Um, they have edited small sections like intros of videos, things like that. Little, the first six, seven seconds of a video or something like that. But I feel like the pacing and style and specifics, and this is definitely something I, I, I sound stubborn to myself saying this out loud, but it sounds like something that I would really need to spend a lot of time with someone like nailing down. Cause it's, I've never quite been able to get that explained in a way that can have someone else do it. But it, it is it is something I am actually actively working on that will probably be one of the next few hires. Uh, it's just uh, it's just the, the steepest learning curve, as you can understand. Yeah, you actually did it backwards. Most people hire an editor first. That's like the first thing they try and outsource, right? And then thumbnails. Yeah. And then they, the hardest part is like finding someone to help with creative and production that understands YouTube and, and how your videos are cadenced and, and what you want. So it's interesting to see like you go the opposite direction of like, I'm gonna continue hiring my editor or I'm gonna continue editing my videos, but I'm gonna build the rest of the team around me. But it is like, you're gonna have to spend a lot of time with that person, just getting them to be kind of in your head of how you like to edit and curate these videos. How, how long have you been looking right now for an editor? Um, probably about a year and a half, something like that. Oh man! Um, okay. And I'm, it's like the the process of hiring is not, is also new to me because the team was only two or the team was only four people a year ago, and now it's double that. So it's uh, the the like onboarding process and teaching and giving feedback and all that stuff is still something tangibly new to me. So I'm I'm working on getting better at it, but I feel like when I get really good at it then the editing hire gets easier because I can better do that process. Hey, and, and you run everything on the business side as well, right? Like, so you're also negotiating brand deals or, or finding brand deals as well. Yeah, and that's another, that's another thing that probably gets chopped off pretty early, I imagine. Um, I don't know if that's, that's, that is probably something I could also pretty quickly chop off. It's funny because the, the amount of time you, that you spend the most on something that makes it feel like your primary job. So three or four years ago, the thing that I spent the most time on was just the whole production process. As I started hiring and delegating, the thing I spent the most time on became writing and editing. Now that I've hired writing help, the thing that I spend the most time on is editing, content strategy, and the inbox. And I feel like if I can hire those things, I can just focus on content strategy and the actual review part that I spend the most like energy on. But that's that remains to be seen. That's that's how I imagine it going over time if this keeps going. Yeah, I mean, I applaud you. I, I thought your team was much bigger. So from from the outside looking in, I, I thought your team was like 12 to 20 people uh, working on this production because it, it is so high quality in your cuts. And like, I, I definitely knew you were gonna have writers because it seems like that's probably the most difficult part when you're talking about like reviewing new products. What, what does it look like from start to finish? So say new iPhones coming out, new Samsung phones coming out. Like what's, how do you guys film that video? And like, how long does it take to get from like, I received the phone in the mail all the way to I posted that phone. Cause I'm guessing sometimes you probably get the phone two to three days before 
this thing is embargoed and you have to like hurry up and get that video out. Yeah, so it definitely depends on the video, but the the writing the writing help I feel like is going to be really great for a lot of the stuff I'm not currently doing and expanding the breadth of of content, not just reviews, but also explainers and other stuff like that. But let's just do a review. So, new phone comes out, shows up in the studio. Typically, it's a, a, about a week at least before the embargo, so I have time to take it out the box, review it, use it, figure out what's good. Um, for me, that process is like I have a document on my phone, and anytime I like realize something that I should write down or say in the review, I just write it down on my phone. So I keep a laundry list as we're going. We get closer to the date that this review is going to be published. So I'm like, all right, I've got all my notes, I've got all my feelings on this thing, let me now write the way this review will go. And so I take all my notes, I take all my specs, I take everything and I put it in this document and I flesh out and I write the whole thing from top to bottom from the intro to what I think is important, the common threads, the video basically gets scripted. Then we're probably about three days from when the video is gonna be dropped, which is just, we just start the production process, which is getting all the shots of all the things. Usually we start with the A-roll and just getting everything said to camera. Um, once I have all of that, and I usually even import it and put it on the timeline, then I have a shot list of all the things that I think should be B-roll. And we've gotten pretty good at actually deciding in the writing process what should be A-roll and B-roll. So we just know when I'm talking to the camera and we just know when I'm just talking. Um, but we spend, yeah, usually about two days shooting video, getting all the shots, the pickups, and then the edit. And the edit is, is the last 12 hours or so. And I'm just like carving everything up and, and putting it where it belongs on the timeline. And hopefully, uh, hopefully it's on time. That's so crazy. How do you actually decide? Obviously, you know, for Apple and Samsung and when the big products come out, you do those reviews. How do you actually even decide which other products you review? Like, I imagine you are probably getting flooded every day with like, please review my product. Uh, like what goes into that decision making process? It's very much uh, hard to describe, but it's like an interestingness scale. And anything you can attack that's at the high level of interestingness is always typically a good idea. How you measure or how I measure interestingness in the tech world is a combination of like brand name, uh, product quality, uh, and, and how the video would, would end up looking. And it's always been funny to like talk to people like Jimmy who are like starting with a video idea and a thumbnail and a title and then working backwards to make the video. I do not have that, that option kind of at all. My video depends on what this is. I can't decide this is going to be a positive review until I get a product that turns out to be good. So all of our creative process is in like analyzing the product when it gets here, realizing what it is, what sort of framing is useful, what sort of relevance it has in the tech world. And that's how we decide if it's worth a video or not. A lot of stuff in tech is like a seven out of 10. And that's not, that interesting, which is kind of makes most of our reviews either like nines and tens or like twos and threes, because those are more interesting, which is kind of funny. The stuff that's kind of okay, like I love these headphones and they're some of the you know earliest things I've ever recommended people buy, they're fine. But if I make a video about that today, it's probably not worth the time. 
the way something like an incredible pair of headphones or an awful pair of headphones would be worth a PSA about. So that's kind of how I judge it. Yeah, you're right. Jimmy has like a board of all his titles. He knows he knows the thumbnail before he even puts up a camera. But it also yeah. there's been a lot of situations where he's like this title and thumbnail is amazing and then they film the video and it gets completely scrapped because the content just isn't there. How often are you scrapping videos? Like if you ever film something and you're just like man, I just don't think my audience is going to care about this video. I can't post it. It, it happens occasionally. Uh, and, and oftentimes it's literally just because of interestingness. Like we'll shoot, we'll get the new Chromecast or something and we shoot a bunch of stuff and we're like, ah, this isn't really worth its own video, but we have all this footage. Maybe we'll combine it into a video about other related things. And then we just kind of sit on that footage and then it dies. Most of the time, the videos that we're locked on, we know are locked way before we even start working on the video where it's like literally a new phone comes out it's like we already know we're reviewing this phone i know already today that i'm going to be reviewing the next iphone i just don't know what that phone's going to be so that context fills in itself over time as the phone gets announced as we get our hands on it and stuff like that but we don't really scrap that many i feel like i've scrapped four videos in the past two years and then, so uh, another interesting thing that I, I look at your channel and like, obviously every time a new phone comes out from Samsung, Apple, now it seems like OnePlus is pretty consistent on your channel. Uh, and then you have a few other uh, phone companies. You've started doing more with Tesla. What do you think your areas of growth are, you know, for 2021? Do you think you're going to push into any other spaces? Like, how do you think about like new, like genres of content within technology? Like where, where's the, where's the growth for you, I guess, in, in new videos? Yeah, it's kind of funny. I've always had the the luxury of like not having to think too hard creatively about the topics of videos because the tech industry keeps it interesting and I'm covering the tech industry. So areas of growth to me kind of rings the same way where I'm thinking, all right, well, what sort of technologies are going to start growing in popularity and, and interest by the public? Um, I kind of, you know, happened to fall on really liking Tesla, but I think electric cars in general are one of those that's just going to to rock it up like everyone's next car purchase is going to have to think about well should i get an electric version and that's pretty important so i feel like that's a big one that's why we have our autofocus series is to start covering that stuff um but yeah generally i mean everyone gets a some piece of tech every year whether it's a smartphone or they need a laptop or they need an ipad or, or whatever that kind of stuff just sort of cyclic cyclically keeps happening it's not really growing um but it keeps happening in the background as a base while we get to explore other things. Yeah, do you, do you think that you'll ever move, I know early on you started to review some software and things like that, but do you think you will ever move back into that and review, I don't know, the best productivity tools and, and things like that on the channel as well? Or how do you think about software or gaming as, as areas to move into? Yeah, I think a lot of the, the more niche stuff might deserve its own audience and its own channel. Um, the way the MKBHD channel has sort of built up is a, is a pretty generalist audience. Obviously, a lot of people are interested in tech and tech enthusiasts, but there's, very, there's a lot more niche things. There's PC build channels, there's Android channels, there's Apple channels. And we, just, we talk about the world of tech, which includes phones and computers and electric cars and TVs and headphones. But when we go back into that niche stuff of like productivity software or editing or mirrorless cameras or whatever, I think uh, I think we we start to think new channel when when we think about that type of stuff. So 
uh, that's something we, we are, we're working on. We do have a bunch of new channel plans for 2021. I know you asked about 2021 plans. That's definitely something on the mind. Um, but we're not, you know, we're not restricting ourselves yet. We're not too set. Would you, are you going to be main talent in those new channels that you guys would potentially launch? Or do you think about like bringing someone else in to be the face of that channel? definitely a combination. I think some of them are still me. Some of them, like the podcast channel, for example, will be Andrew and I co-hosting um, with occasional guests. Then there's uh, this second channel that we're working on, which won't be just me. It will be the whole team that I've described here at the studio. Um, and I think some would potentially be, you know, main hosted by another person. That really just depends on it depends on the thing again like there are certain topics where you come back to the same person over again for the same expertise over and over again and it works that way sometimes it's just an entertainment thing and it's the whole group and if it's some parts are here sometimes and other parts are here other times that works too do you do you think you'll ever move into i don't know like given that you have such a good read on the actual hardware and technology that you're reviewing do you think you will ever start to create hardware yourself or, I don't know, consult or do co-branded products with some of the major technology companies? Like, do you think that is something that will happen one day? That is something I have thought a lot about for a long time. And the reason it's such a tough question to answer is because the, the issue of, um, of conflict of interest comes up. Because if I'm reviewing every company's, let's say, smartphone. I have to be able to stay unbiased about every single company and all the smartphones they make and to be able to review it with an objective eye. So if I wanted to someday make my own smartphone, I'd have to partner with one of these companies. And that would immediately feel like I can no longer review, maybe not even just that company's phones, but all of phones with an objective eye. Now, I think that's not actually the way I think about it. I think if I was involved in a smartphone making process, I would actually have a better idea of how to review all phones, but I'm not sure that's the way the audience thinks. So that's, I've, I've thought about that for a long time and I'm not sure there's an easy answer, um, but I'm open to it. And I also love the idea of applying my taste to products I've reviewed. Um, but typically these days it applies to adjacent products, whether it's cases, skins, you know, things, even in apparel, if it's something like just that applies to my taste, that's a lot easier to co-create. Um, but maybe someday tech product, maybe someday. Have you ever, have you ever gotten a negative email? Like, I, cause you're very true to like what you actually think about the product. You don't lie. Have you, have you ever like put out a video for a company and then just gotten an email the next day, basically with someone in the marketing team or PR team that's been upset by your video? Um, yeah, all the time. Yes. Yeah. Uh, there's so many examples that come to mind. Like the thing about that when that happens is like, it's always a weird feeling because I'm telling the truth. So if I, if I say a bunch of bad things about your product, it's because those things were really bad about your product. And so to get a response about, you know, you shouldn't have said that, or like, this was a cheap shot or whatever, like, not really. <laughs> like, I'm just telling the truth here. Like I do every time. Um, yeah, no, I've given plenty of negative reviews. Uh, on occasion, there will be something where they're like, we don't think you have a, a fully functional product. Um, I had a product where the selfie camera was so bad that the company emailed me saying, I think yours was actually broken. Let's send you another one. In that case, it wasn't broken. 
Um, I had a company make a, a folding phone that creaked and made this really weird noise when it opened. And it shipped all the way from China. I was like, oh, maybe there was, you know, something happened in shipping with moisture, whatever. I don't know why it's making this noise. Um, they were very quick to email me and send me another one. They sent me another one. It didn't creak. Oh, interesting. So there's a variety of responses that happen when, uh, when a negative review goes out. But typically, I imagine the internal reaction to the people that made it was, yeah, we knew. Mm-hmm. We knew it was bad. There, there was like a video that comes to mind. It was the Samsung Galaxy Fold, I believe. And mm. I remember your review, and it, it almost seemed like the, it was like the top layer of the screen was coming off. And I, they, I believe they sent you a new one because it was potentially a, a product that there's something on the product that shouldn't have happened. Like that, that was one that kind of stood out to me. And I'm sure everyone at Samsung was watching that video, just horrified, of like, yeah. wow, now everyone's gonna go to this video to watch him talk about this Samsung Fold, and there's like something peeling off the side of our phone. That's kind of why I ask, because that's like top of mind when, when I think about your channel and like just a review that probably shouldn't have been that way, but maybe it was a defaulty product that you got in the mail. Yeah, that, that was a really interesting specific scenario. So the Fold came out, and this was a, and you know, we get a lot of different types of embargoes and, and things that happen behind the scenes when they hand you a product pre-release, but generally, it's pretty hands-off. When this fold came out, they specifically only gave out a few and made a very big point about how they're not giving out very many. And then they mandated that they would recall it within like four days or something like that. And that had never happened before. Usually Samsung sends a product and then six months later they're like, hey, you still got that thing? Like they don't really usually care that much. So that was a big red flag to me. They're like mandating that they're going to like fly someone over to you to come take it back from you in four days. I was like, okay, interesting. Um, the, you know, the phone comes out. It's got this uh, this like screen protector looking thing on the front of the display. I made my initial unboxing, published it, peeled the screen protector off. Halfway off, the screen blacks out. I'm like, this is weird. <laughs> but I didn't put that in the unboxing video, so I'm just kind of sitting on this half broken Samsung phone, and I email Samsung about it, and they go, oh, yep, we'll collect that. And they didn't even question it. And that was another red flag. Like, I just peeled the screen protector off and it broke and you're just gonna, okay, interesting. Um, and then, a, you know, a couple hours later, it breaks on Twitter, other people start tweeting mm-hmm. like, hey, mine broke, did yours break? Oh, mine broke too, oh, that's funny, all of ours broke. Um, so yeah, eventually it became a story about how Samsung had to redo the front of that display to make that screen protector, which wasn't a screen protector, it was part of the screen had to go all the way underneath the bezels of the screen so that people who bought it wouldn't peel it. Um, that's an experience they probably would not have had if our, us reviewers had not had those experiences and peeled them off. So long story short, Samsung learned from it. Uh, we all learned from from that mistake and hopefully uh, future phones don't have non-removable parts of the screen sticking up. I'm curious, like off of that, how do you think about just staying unbiased. Like I imagine there's so much pressure from specifically Apple fanboys or like just fans in general being like, if, if you do a bad review on something, I imagine people will come at you if, if it's an Apple product. Like how do you think about that from just your audience and, and like staying objective and unbiased through all of it? Yeah, I, I'm lucky enough to be able to have a foot in both worlds. I think the easiest way to become overly biased about something is to not explore other options and you just sort of stick with 
the iPhone you always know or the MacBook you always know. And so I feel like I'm not, I'm not even actively deciding to try to be as unbiased as possible. It's just that I'm using other things. So when I, I pick up a new iPhone and I notice, man, this, this ultra wide is really soft. Like that's not me being biased against the iPhone. That's me going, well, this one had a way sharper ultra wide. This one had a way sharper ultra wide. I'm just telling you what else is out there for your own information. Kind of goes back to the original point, which was helping you have all the information to make the best purchase decision possible. So uh, my objectiveness comes from extra information and context. One thing too that I, I kind of wanted to get into is, you know, you've been fortunate enough to get to eat to interview Elon Musk and Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg and you know some amazing founders. How how did those things come about? Did they reach out to you? Did you reach out to them? Like how how did that come together? Yeah, there's it's a sort of a healthy mix of both. Um, a lot of times it's actually them reaching out to me, which is interesting. They they'll have some sort of a, usually there's some sort of PR thing happening. They're doing a bunch of interviews. They're collaborating on YouTube for the first time. They want to find a nice family-friendly YouTuber they can collaborate with. Who could it possibly be? Um, and with a lot of them, it ends up making sense to do some sort of talking tech. For me, I'm trying to find and talk to people who have some sort of an interesting perspective on tech in some way. And if you could sit down and talk to Elon about tech or cars or factories for a half hour, Seems like a pretty fun idea. So I, I of course, say yes to these things. Um, but yeah, that's generally what they come from is like, oh, okay, Bill Gates is doing an annual letter where he's talking about X, Y, and Z, and he wants to collaborate on YouTube. Are you down? Okay, yeah, actually, Z is kind of connected to this other thing I wanted to talk about with him. How about we just do an interview, talking tech, we'll hit some of these points, and we'll just see what happens. And that's how the videos come up. Uh, so far, so good. Yeah, I, I mean, it's crazy because in a lot of ways, I think you, I, I was talking to read about this before we started, but you're one of the few, I don't know, YouTubers, content creators that you want to call it, that has really transcended as far as just the respect that you have within the entire ecosystem, like just in tech broadly. Like the fact that, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and Elon and Obama and these people are all talking to you and respect you, I think is something that is, is just so great for the ecosystem. Like, I'm curious... You know, you've been doing this for so long. Do you have any advice to the people, like other people in the ecosystem or just like people who want to break into becoming a, a YouTuber or content creator? Yeah. Uh, I mean, my advice is always, you know, trying to trying to answer like, what do you want to get out of this? Because there's usually two very different answers. You know, that, that like survey of like asking a bunch of kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? And half of them say they want to be a YouTuber. Like that's cool but do you want to do it for fun or as your job? Because I have two very different pieces of advice for you if you have each one of those goals. It's like if you want to play basketball. Do you want to play basketball for fun? Okay, find a group of people who you want to play with. Like, ha Make sure you actually enjoy basketball and, and not just trying to do it to become famous for basketball or whatever. And just if you never make a dime from it, find some sort of workflow or something that's creatively fulfilling to you and fun and that you would just do it for fun. If you want to make a job out of it, it requires an extra level of dedication, of purpose, of planning that a lot of people aren't really willing to put in or, or even realize that they have to put in. Um, but it definitely applies to YouTube. Like if you're, if you're asking for advice on how to turn it into your job, 
it's not just going to be making videos, it's going to be search engine optimization, it's going to be production, it's going to be building a creative team. Um, but generally, generally my advice is uh, if you pick a topic that you really care about and enjoy, and you can make videos about it for the rest of the time and never make a dime about it, and just have fun with it, then you're starting in the right place. Do you, I, I wanted to get a little bit into uh, into data. Do you pay attention to your YouTube data? Like, do you know like what your, your click-through rates and your average view durations are? Do you just totally ignore it, not really worry about it? Like, where, where are you kind of at on that spectrum? Because, you know, we have clients here that are like looking at it every 10 minutes and then we have clients that just don't care at all. I'm definitely a numbers person. I went to, you know, I was the engineering school kid. I was the, the, the math kid. So I was definitely, I've been paying attention to the numbers for a long time. I don't feel like I'm on the extreme end of the spectrum because I don't feel like I actively try to change things to change the numbers, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like people look at like average view duration or you know click-through rate and will say, okay, in order to take it from this number to this number, I need to do a couple things. To me, it's more of an indicator of like how good the thing was and then I can learn from it but I'm not specifically trying to hit like a, like a click-through rate or, or average view duration number. But I definitely recognize when I think, this is a good one. This is a video that's gonna have great retention and I know it, and if it doesn't, I'm gonna have to learn why. Um, but I think that's just because I, I like numbers, so. Do you, I <laughs> yeah. mean, do you have multiple thumbnails for a video or do you switch titles or do you just completely leave everything? That, that's been very new to me. I've seen a lot of that happening and I've never, done it. I've never changed it. Well, I've, I've adjusted a title, maybe with a single word or a piece of punctuation. Mm -hmm. um, I do not have multiple thumbnails. I, I, I creatively, you know, sync everything into one thumbnail, which is probably not smart. And then if it dies, it dies. Uh, I think a lot of people do learn a lot from switching thumbnails. I just don't know that I can fully trust that all of the difference in performance upon changing a thumbnail is because of the difference in thumbnail. There's so many other factors with time and time zones and audiences waking up in this time versus this time. And like audiences in this region are more interested in this product and they're waking up, but like there, there's too many things. So I feel like if I change the thumbnail and I see a 0.3% difference, I'm gonna think, what if it was 0.3% down? I don't know. Mm. I, it would have to be a dramatic difference for me to really want to change a thumbnail. Yeah. So I, I pour a lot into a single thumbnail and I usually stick with it. Yeah. Do you, do I think, you create your, your thumbnails? Yeah, and it's typically been uh, a frame from the video plus some edits. Okay. And that's, that's uh, not everybody's philosophy, but I feel like it's a, it's a pretty big staple on the channel at this point is when you see an MKBHD video, I don't know if anyone even thinks this way, but when you see an MKBHD video thumbnail, you're gonna see that frame in the video somewhere. Hmm. And so if you're interested in that thumbnail, you're gonna see exactly what's happening in the thumbnail. Yeah, I, th I think for like, for Jimmy, for Mr. Beast, it's his, his velocity of views is so much higher, like because he's receiving like millions of views every hour, that when he makes like really small changes, he sees massive bumps in either direction. And I think right. that's why like sometimes people will go to like Jimmy's channel and they'll be like, he's changed his thumbnail three times in the last like two hours, like why? Um, but then some YouTubers are like, I'll never change the thumbnail. I'll learn like if it has low CTR, I'll, I'll understand why it did poorly. So it's, it's really interesting. I still, I can't, 
I can't believe you make your own thumbnails. Like you don't have someone in house that's doing that. Cause I feel like that's the second hire that most YouTubers make. It's like editor, thumbnail artist, but you're still like holding onto those two pieces right now. Yeah, so I've, I've recently hired a graphic designer who will be contributing two thumbnails. So at the moment, I like cut the thumbnail frame, I find the frame, I do all my edits, and if there's any extra special edits we need, I have a, a motion graphic, or a stills graphics designer I work with on them. But I, I have never, I feel like you have to be involved in the video process to understand what makes a good thumbnail for this piece. Mm -hmm. And maybe I'm wrong about that, but I feel like it's been true for, for a long time about this channel where it's like, you know, this next phone I'm reviewing, can I even say this? I won't say that. Uh, another, another phone will come out where it has like a certain, like one or two features that really stand out about it in the video. And you won't know what makes a good thumbnail for this gadget, because that's the thing. The gadget is the star of the show and the thumbnail revolves around the gadget, not me, most of the time. Mm -hmm. um, so you won't really know what makes a good thumbnail for the video about the gadget until you know about the gadget and the video about the gadget, if that makes sense. So like, if you ever saw you know a bunch of reviews about this phone, the OnePlus uh, 9 Pro, not a single thumbnail about this phone showed the front of the phone. Every single thumbnail shows this interesting part of the phone, which is the back of the phone, the Hasselblad logo, and the big ultra wide because nobody really cares about the rest of the phone immediately on their click and if you just got hired to make a cool thumbnail with this phone i don't know if you'd land on that maybe you would but i guess that's my philosophy on like how our thumbnails come together what what are you most excited about right now in the space electric cars 100 percent electric cars mm -hmm. and it's because there's so much room to grow, but they're also so exciting already in their infancy. Um, you know, Tesla's a couple years old. Tesla's killing it, but obviously here come the big dogs. Here come the Mercedes and the Audis and the Hondas and Toyotas and everybody. Everybody's after them and everybody in tech, when product is king, no matter how good your brand is, nobody cares until the product is actually good. I'm not gonna spend $50,000 on a Mercedes electric car if it's actually worse than the Tesla. You would think like, oh, brand cachet matters a lot. You actually have to make a better car. So here here they all come. Um, really excited about that. Uh, cameras have gotten really good lately, especially the small ones, the mirrorless cameras. So that's been fun. I've shot a lot on my Sony A1, which I didn't think I would say in the last couple of years. We've been so consistent with red cameras. So that's another one. But I think number one has got to be the car world. What about like SpaceX, Blue Origin? I don't, I don't know if you knew this either. Blake used to actually worked at SpaceX. Uh, nice. So do you guys think you'll ever start reporting on any of that? Reporting for me would come from what experiences are available to the public. Cause it's always cool to watch the rocket land and that's so sick to like watch the video of it. But at the end of the day, it's just something cool that I'm watching. But if someday the opportunity to go to space happens and there's regular people will, will be able to go to space, Yes, that's what I want to cover. I want to show what this experience will be like to people before they get to the experience. Um, but as of right now, it's cool to watch. You, you touched on something there, just even in that answer around how you, you use red cameras and you're sort of, at least for me, 
you were the first creator that I saw that really invested in the production side of it. Like I remember going to one of your videos, I don't know, probably a couple of years ago. And it was like, you can watch it in, I don't even remember the resolution. It was like mind blowing. I was like, this is crazy. I didn't even know YouTube supported this. I, I'm curious how you think about that. Like, uh, is, is it always the goal to just push it to like the highest production level and on your side, or how do you just think about like making sure you have the highest quality? Yeah, there's always a couple layers behind that, but basically, at the end of the day, we're all tech nerds and cameras are a piece of tech, so we're all camera nerds and we all just love high quality production. So I've I've loved making high quality videos. It's always a fun challenge to me to make a better video. But also, the super high production quality that it has turned into has become a staple of the channel and has become hard to replicate. And that's something I think about a lot is there's you know, a million different tech channels you could watch and subscribe to. And ultimately, if we're all reviewing the same thing, generally we're all gonna be saying mostly the same thing to you. Here's how good the camera is. Here's how good the battery life is. And so what differentiates the channels is things like personality, things like production. And because our production is so over the top and uh, high quality, even the best you know, productions that are trying to, we've noticed, copy a lot of what we do, uh, won't be able to copy things like the robot shots or the motion graphics or the super high-end stuff. So that becomes an extra reason to watch the videos, whether it's entertainment value or just for fun. It's a it's a perfect example of just a moat that you've formed purely off of doing well, like uh, as, as a channel because you've reinvested, which is awesome. Most of what I spend money on is tech and videos. I, I want to jump back to Apple quickly because, you know, you had the privilege of going to some of those events when, when Steve Jobs was presenting? Like what, what's your like best Steve Jobs story uh, while attending some of those events? I didn't get to go to a Steve Jobs event. I was right after. Oh wow, okay. So so that was, so the Steve, there's a lot of great Steve Jobs stories. I mean, I've gone to a lot of Tim Cook events. Do you go to all of them? And, uh, yeah, pretty much, yeah. Okay. I mean, they don't have that many events. Really, they do obviously a lot of virtual stuff now, but they'll have like, one event where they'll invite everyone on campus and they will present their new set of products, whether it's you know an iPhone and some accessories like chargers, or they'll have a, an event hosted somewhere where they'll present. Like their March event a couple of years ago was just iPads and education products. Um, I'm pretty much covering all of that stuff, so I'm, I'm pretty much invited to all of those events. Uh, they're all different. It's kind of funny. They're all they're all different based on the hype going into like what people think is going to show up on stage. Some events have no hype at all, and then there's like kind of a surprising announcement, and suddenly that's all anyone talks about. Some are the other way around. They have like a ton of hype. Everyone's gone. This is the year. This is the year we're going to get you know an Apple AR headset and this crazy other, th and then it's just kind of a a new phone that looks like last year's phone. So. It's, it's always fun to, to observe like the atmosphere of everyone going in versus everyone leaving, because that's something you don't really get from the videos about the products. Where's, like, where's the innovation come from over the next like 10 years in the phone market? It feels like now, like at least for me, like I use a OnePlus, I have an iPhone. It's like kind of just better camera at this point every year, maybe a little bit more high res screen, maybe a little bit better battery. Like where do you think that in, like the innovation in the next 10 years is gonna come from in these phones? And are we just gonna eventually take this out of our hand and it's gonna be in our eye, it's gonna be in our glasses? Like what, 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 are, what are your thoughts? Yeah, 10 years is so hard to, to predict. Cause I, if you ask me what's in phones in three or four years, it's still pretty tough. It seems like we, we kind of always just find a new little thing. 
that turns out to be mm -hmm. a good idea. Companies are always throwing something at the wall, higher refresh rate, and then it sticks. It's like, yeah, actually, it turns out using a higher refresh rate screen is much more engaging and responsive. Then they'll throw something else at the wall, macro cameras. And people go, eh, used one, didn't love it. Doesn't matter if the next one doesn't have one. And then they don't buy the next phone with the macro camera. So that stuff just kind of falls out of the phone. Um, and that's kind of the way the innovations happen over the last few years now that smartphones are mature. The one thing that's come up lately is this alternate form factor foldable universe. You talked about the Galaxy mm -hmm. Fold. There's a bunch of competitors like the Surface and Huawei Mate X and the Royal FlexPie that was making creaking noises. Like it's all over the all over the map. That might be maybe the next wave of innovation where it's like now you have twice as much battery and twice as much screen. But we don't know. <laughs> In ten years, we could forget about folding phones. I, I tend to think there's some merit to it if the tech gets so good that folding in half is just another feature, then foldable phones are the future. But we're a long way from that. So it's it's tough to talk about mm -hmm. 10 years from now. Yeah, I, I remember at the beginning of 2021, you, you tweet something like your New Year's resolution was like you wanted to shout out more small channels that were like doing great work on YouTube. Are there any channels in specific that you would recommend people go and watch or that you would promote? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the one that came up when you said that Gerald Undone not even that small of a channel, but does incredibly good camera reviews. And that comes from the fact that there are so many channels now that if you just try to be another MKBHD generalist channel covering everything, you would kind of get swallowed by just the breadth of people covering things more in depth than you. So what Gerald's done is he just goes all the way deep on every single detail of a new camera that comes out. If a new Canon comes out, I know he's going to tell me what comes in the box, how long it can go without overheating, what the bit rates are, what the native ISO is. I can just scroll through his videos, chapters, and I will learn everything about that camera. And so he's a great example of a channel that is more niche, but more useful because it's niche and it's, it stands out more. So shout out to him. We'll, uh, we'll definitely link that channel down below. We appreciate you coming on. I, we, I know we've been meaning to do this for a couple weeks. We, we haven't had someone uh, in the tech space, in the creator tech space on yet. I hope this was helpful to everyone watching. But yeah, we I mean, we appreciate it. I'm, I'm obsessed with this stuff. I drive a Tesla. Hopefully I'll continue to drive a Tesla. But like you said, it'll be interesting to see how this matures over the next five years. Definitely. We'll see if there's a, hopefully someone makes Tesla look silly in the next few years. That would be really exciting. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't see it happening, but let's, uh, let's hope. Because I'll, I'll be on board to buy whatever that product is. Yeah, they're, they're really far ahead in some ways. I think my, my next video about the next electric car video might be interesting to you because there's I've always had this hot take about what people buying new cars really care about. And you know, everyone loves the, the Tesla and how fast it is and how fun it is to drive. But the knock you always hear is always like, oh, interior quality is not that great. Oh, panel gaps aren't that great. And I always think like, you're right, but do people really care? And this next car is the complete opposite of a Tesla. It is an incredible $200,000 amazing interior. Every quality you could think of, massage seats, heated, cooled, ventilated, like voice control. I mean, it's, it's an unreal car. And the software is garbage. <laughs> Would people buy that car over a Tesla or do they really just want the Tesla? We'll find out. Yeah, we'll definitely find out. I, I'm loyal to Elon, so I don't think I could buy that car even if I wanted. It was like when we did Team Trees 
uh, and Jimmy tried to raise and ended up raising $20 million in under 60 days, him and I had this like running joke where like if Elon actually invests in team trees, like we'll go buy Teslas. And then Elon ended up putting a million dollars in when you actually messaged him on Twitter. I think he, mm -hmm. what, I don't even remember how it went. Did you tweet something and then he responded or? I tweeted about Team Trees and then a couple hours later he DM'd me asking if he should donate and I said yes that would be great. He then donated like an hour later and I think I sent the screenshot of the DM to Jimmy or mm -hmm. something like that. Uh, so yeah, yeah, worked out pretty good. Probably wow. one of the you know wildest moments of Jimmy and I's lives uh, when that happened and then seeing the million dollars actually come through on the back end of the site. We couldn't believe it. Uh, and then you know a few months later we're like yep gotta get Tesla's so uh, I, it'd be hard for me to sell it and get something else at this point fair fair very fair okay so but no I, we appreciate that tweet and we appreciate you coming on